Hello everyone, and welcome back to the History of Africa podcast. I'm your host, Andy. Last episode, we witnessed the rise of Radama to the kingship of Imerina. After a tumultuous start to his reign, including assassination attempts and multiple armed revolts, Radama managed to reconsolidate power over Imerina. With the kingdom again under his control, Radama's conquest of the eastern coast will carry an entire new set of implications for Imerina and Madagascar's future. Season 4, Episode 16 Modernizing Madagascar Part 1 The Conquest of Tuamasina Here's a question for you. Uh, What does the word modern actually mean? On a vernacular level, this question seems pretty simple, right? Modern means, well, current, up-to-date, or with the times. That's simple enough. Except, the further you look into it, the idea of something being modern is actually quite complicated. Take, for example, the much-maligned modern art. It's not uncommon to hear people speak critically about the concept of modern art, about how its forms are allegedly so abstract that they are, well, meaningless, and how anything can pass for art these days. One of the most common punching bags in this regard is Fountain, a piece of art by French sculptor and painter Marcel Duchamp. And, bear with me, this will end up tying back to the history of Madagascar, I promise. With this infamous work of art, Duchamp submitted a urinal to an art exhibition, which, after some debate, was accepted. Yes, you heard that right, a urinal. As a result of its unusual form as, well, a urine receptacle, Fountain became, and remains, a common example given among critics of modern art. The only problem is that, by the vernacular definition at least, it's not modern at all. Fountain was made in 1917, more than a century ago. How can we call something more than a hundred years old modern? Ironically, an automobile or plane from the era would be considered vintage, while a piece of art from that same year remains modern? Now, yes, I know the term modern here when discussing art refers to the modernist art movement and not modern in the vernacular sense, but my point here is that modernity is not such a straightforward and easy-to-define concept. What is modern and what is vintage or obsolete can change radically depending on context, and this question only becomes more convoluted when applied to analysis of society. Here's a relevant follow-up question. Can countries be modern? This is, admittedly, a hard concept to even approach. Besides their existence or non-existence in the current era, what actually makes a society modern? Is it a country's institutions, its culture, political organization, economy? Or, perhaps even more pressing, what features make a country pre-modern? After all, the idea of the existence of modern countries necessarily relies on a paradigm of modernity and pre-modernity. If there are modern states, there must, of course, be pre-modern or backward states. Now, don't feel bad if you don't have the answers off the top of your head. I know I don't, since these are very tricky questions. I wanted to introduce this tough dichotomy, the idea of what is modern and pre-modern, because this theme will permeate this entire episode of Medina history. And while I doubt that we will reach for ourselves the true meaning of modernity, In the context of Imerina in this time period, there may just be an answer waiting for us. Whether or not we, future students of history, agree with it or not, the main figure of this episode, Mpanjaka Radama I, 
does have some strong principles on what he considers to be the defining traits of modernity and pre-modernity. He will embark on a crusade to radically transform his kingdom into his conception of a modern state. The inciting incident behind Radama's imposition of radical economic and social reforms to modernize his country was rooted in the year 1817, 100 years before the creation of Fountain. In this year, Radama first invaded coastal Madagascar. Radama mobilized his army for an attack on one of the principal ports of the eastern Malgasy coast, the city of Toamasina. However, the plan of conquest was complicated by the political circumstances of the city. Toamasina, in 1817, was essentially under the rule of a trading cartel, run by a San Malata Creole merchant named Jean René. While the region was ostensibly a vassal of the Sakalava kingdom of Boigny, in reality, Jean René and his private merchant cartel ran the city as a personal fief, exporting enslaved workers, foods, and other goods from Madagascar to the world. In this kind of corporate kingdom, power was regulated primarily by language. The ability to converse in French, English, and Malgasy were each crucial in limiting and dictating who had access to economic, state, and military power. René was fluent in all three. The city's status as a major trading port had led to the recent emergence of missionary schools throughout the city, followed by churches for a small but growing Christian minority. Tuomasina, under René's de facto rulership, had become a bastion of Malgasy Creole culture and its combining of Malgasy and European customs. Its ties to the growing European investments in the Mascarene Islands and South Asia led Tuomasina to develop from a small port into a flourishing cosmopolitan city. However, while René had built Toamasina into a wealthy city, it was not necessarily a safe city. Raids from other Betsimi-Seraka kingdoms were a chronic problem, with the new economic success of Toamasina only making it an even juicier target for attacks. Combating these raids was difficult. Toamasina was wealthy, but still quite small and most of the local peasant classes felt little to no loyalty towards their mercantile overlords. Since drafting levies to counter raids would be difficult if not impossible, René instead had to turn to mercenaries, an expensive solution with inconsistent results. The true factor keeping Tuomasina independent was the favor of European powers, particularly the British. So, the British Empire has not featured prominently in the series as of yet, and that's because, up until now, the role of the British in the region surrounding Madagascar had been pretty minor. British, along with other European merchants and pirates, had made stops on the island, but not in the same volume as their French counterparts. That all changed in the year 1810. With war waging between Napoleon's French Empire and Britain, British ships dispatched the Indian Ocean to seize French colonies in the area. This included, crucially, the annexation of the wealthy French sugar plantations of Mauritius. The British capture of Mauritius added a further wrinkle to the economy of Madagascar. While only a fraction of enslaved workers exported from Malgasy ports were destined for Mauritius, it was still a considerable number, with this being especially the case for an east coast city like Tuamasina. When the British seized Mauritius, they implemented British law on the island, which, as of 1807, included the abolition of the slave trade. Now, this didn't mean the same thing as abolition of slavery. Enslaved labor would continue to be exploited on the island for multiple decades into the future. But, at least according to the law, 
British merchants were now forbidden from importing and exporting enslaved people from or to their colonies. In reality, the policy took a while to actually make much of an impact. Sure, the law says one thing, but Mauritius was full of planters who had become terribly dependent on the importation of enslaved people. Toamasina, full of merchants who depended on the exportation of enslaved laborers, were more than happy to assist Mauritius's planters by helping them evade British law through smuggling. Historically, British and French influence had been important in keeping Tuamasina independent. The presence of aforementioned missionary schools motivated European powers to view the area as part of their sphere of influence. Sure, any large Malgasy army could easily and quickly invade and conquer the poorly defended city, with the European powers being helpless to stop them militarily, but they could retaliate economically by taking their business elsewhere. This provided a strong incentive for Malagasy kingdoms not to mess with Tuamasina. However, as Jean René brazenly evaded British anti-slave trade laws, much to the chagrin of the new colonial government of Mauritius, Radama spotted an opportunity to drive a wedge between his future conquest and their European allies. Starting in the lead-up to 1817, Radama started taking numerous visits from politicians and diplomats representing the Mauritius colonial government including visits from the Mauritian governor, Robert Farquhar, himself. During these diplomatic summits, Radama portrayed himself as the exact type of person that Farquhar was looking for in an ally. He projected himself as a man interested in European cultures, a crusader against the slave trade, and a holder of sympathies for the Christian faith. He also depicted himself as a leader eager to develop new trade avenues with Britain, and one who would give the British absolute freedom in terms of trade throughout Madagascar. If the British would allow him to take Tuamasina without retaliation, Radama claimed, then they would have a powerful, enlightened ally in Madagascar, who would let them trade when and where they wanted, without regulation. In a genius diplomatic move, Radama tempted the British with the exact type of alliance they wanted, only to immediately pull the rug out from under them and make clear that he was not going to offer up such an alliance for free. When a British representative came to Antanarifu to negotiate a treaty with several of Radama's ministers, the king had a ready list of demands. Most importantly, there was the way that the treaty referred to Radama himself. In this section of the treaty referring to Radama, he was granted the title King of Madagascar. Now, in reality, Radama controlled nothing in Madagascar outside of Imerina itself. But by recognizing Radama as the independent king of the entirety of Madagascar, the British were essentially endorsing any future overtures of conquest Radama made not only towards Toamasina, but towards any other territories throughout the entire island. In exchange, Radama agreed to be an eternal friend and brother to the British, and to formally outlaw the trade of slaves and prosecute those who did so illegally. The slave trade was an important sector of the Medina economy, so in order to compensate for its abolition, Radama's ambassadors negotiated a considerable payment from the British government. Each year, the British would have to pay the government of Imerina a stipend of 1,000 gold piastres, 100 muskets, 100 barrels of powder, 400 complete military uniforms, and two horses. Finally, each country would strategically exchange manpower. Two British sergeants would travel to Imerina to introduce new military tactics and organization of the Napoleonic Age. Then, two of Radama's brothers would travel to Mauritius to learn about cultivation techniques used on the island's plantations. While Radama drove a hard bargain, Farquhar ultimately agreed, signing the first Anglo-Medina Treaty of Friendship. 
With the British endorsement of his conquest of Tolomasina, the Mpanjaka readied his army. In a show of the impressive population, territorial, and institutional evolution of his kingdom, Radama was able to raise the largest army yet seen in Malgasy history, a levy of more than 25,000 men. Compare this, for example, to the legendary 1,000 used by Andrean Jaca to capture Antanarifu about 200 years earlier. Seeing the large Merina force massing outside of his territory, Jean René knew that the time for war was approaching, and quickly began to panic. Unaware of Radama's newfound alliance with the British, Jean René attempted to fall back to his old allies, asking for their assistance against the pending invasion. The British seemingly obliged, sending a pair of gunboats to Tuamasina Harbor. But as Radama's army approached, the British aimed their guns at Jean René, and told him that it would be far better for everyone if he just surrendered. René reluctantly accepted the betrayal, and Tuamasina fell with minimal violence. Strangely enough, despite Radama and Jean René leading opposite sides of the conflict, the two are interestingly quite close parallels of each other. In fact, if not for the conflicting political interest, it seems like the two would have gotten along quite well together. Both men shared an interest in European fashion, albeit with Radama treating it as an exotic curiosity, while René treated it as a default form of dress. Both men similarly shared an influence in the French and English languages, with René speaking it fluently, while Radama would soon begin trying to learn both as a second and third language. We'll be back after a quick break. How are University of Notre Dame faculty and students working to be a force for good in the world? Listen to Notre Dame stories to find out. Through expert interviews and captivating stories, listeners gain an inside perspective on the global and domestic challenges the university is working to solve. Subscribe to Notre Dame Stories wherever you get your podcasts. Both men are also described in the writings of observers as intelligent, ambitious, and pragmatic individuals. While the two had been enemies in the struggle for control over Tuamasina, it shouldn't be too surprising then that the duo began to reconcile almost immediately after the conflict was resolved. René had tried to hold on to sovereign power, but by this point he knew that he had been beat, and was now willing to do whatever it took to cling on to whatever position he could in the new Merina-led future. Radama, on the other hand, knew that René's connection to the mercantile, mercenary, and creole communities were an invaluable asset. So, King Radama offered Jean René a deal. If René pledged an oath of loyalty as a subservient governor and abandoned any pretenses of independent authority, then Radama would continue to let him rule as governor of Tuamasina. René agreed to these terms, and was granted Andriana status as the new Old Lord of Tuamasina, but now only as a vassal to Radama. And in a surprise to nobody, it turned out that now that they were political allies instead of adversaries, their relationship was quite productive. The new relationship between the king and his governor allowed Merina trade agents to have direct access to one of the most frequented ports in Madagascar, and could sell directly to their coastal trading partners. Meanwhile, the Merina army provided a new degree of security for Tuamasina, transforming it into an easy raid target into a heavily guarded jewel of the Merina state. With the conquest of Tuamasina, Radama had fulfilled his promise to his father to extend Merina to the sea and now possessed a direct window to the outside world. 
But Radama's conquering ambitions did not end with the eastern port. There's a reason why Radama stipulated that so much of the British compensation in their treaty of friendship, such as rifles, gunpowder, uniforms, and officers, were so straightforwardly tied to warfare. Tuomasina was simply the first of Radama's ambitions. He wanted to transform his title of King of Madagascar from a mere honorific into an expression of political reality. His army, already the most powerful and largest in Madagascar at this point, was now fueled by an unprecedented quantity of British guns and drilled by British officers. Radama almost immediately put this army to the test in the field. In the waning months of 1820, Radama mobilized his army for a series of campaigns throughout Madagascar. First, Radama turned his armies against the largest remaining rival on the island, the once hegemonic power of Menabe. Although the two kingdoms had briefly shared an alliance since the reign of Andrea Nampoini Merina, the Impanjaka Merina sought to reinterpret this alliance as subjugation. Radama sent a diplomatic envoy to the king of Menabe, demanding that he swear an oath of allegiance to Radama, and in exchange, Radama would treat him like a royal governor. The king of Menabe refused this upstart's request, and war broke out soon after. For the parting words before heading west, Radama spoke to an assembled crowd at the Rofa. Here is what I declare to you, my subjects. I am going to achieve the goals defined by Andrinampoini Merina. Give me words free from all lies and all deceit. Because this island does not have two masters. It is the sea that constitutes the limit of my rice field. He gave this country to one and left it to only one, to me. You, my soldiers, are men who have been chosen. I will make you like short kilts, like little meals that will allow me to unify the country surrounded by waters. Despite these confident words, the war with Menabe would not turn out as the triumphant victory which Radama expected. There was a reason, after all, why the Sakalav had been the most powerful state in Madagascar for so long. In a sense, Imerina's attempts at military modernization were still a game of catch-up against the Sakalav. The War of 1820 ended in an inconclusive draw. While Radama's army outnumbered the Sakalav, the wily Sakalav monarch instead chose to avoid direct conflict and practiced a form of asymmetric guerrilla warfare. Radama's army technically won the war, capturing a few abandoned frontier villages, but quickly ran out of supplies. So, seeing no route of victory, Radama decided to declare victory and head back home. The inconclusive war begat an inconclusive peace, with the only real change being that the king of Menabe offered his daughter's hand in marriage as an olive branch. While the Sakalava of Menabe were still powerful enough to resist Radama's army, though, few others on the island could say the same. Reeling from their failure against Menabe, the army of Imerina took their frustration out on numerous smaller kingdoms. By the end of 1820, the entirety of the Malagasy highlands were under Radama's control. But he was not yet satisfied. In 1822, he launched another campaign, conquering some of Menabe's vassal states in the northern peninsula of Madagascar. His armies continued expanding in the south, too, enveloping the coastal town south of Toamasina. The city of Vatomandri, once the only eastern port to rival Toamasina in wealth and power, soon fell to Radama's advance. In 1823, he launched another war against the Sakalava of Menabe, finding more success than the first time around and seizing some genuinely important border territories. While Radama would never fully break through Menabe and conquer its entirety, 
1824, much of its original territory had fallen to his advance. The other Sakalava, Boigny, was next on Radama's chopping block. In 1825, he gave his army simple orders. March north, and don't stop until you are stopped. In a potent showcase of his army's improved power, nobody could halt their advance until they reached the northern tip of Madagascar. By the end of this rapid series of campaigns, more than two-thirds of the island was under Radama's control. With each passing year, the title Mpanjake Merina became less a reflection of reality. Instead, Radama began to use a new title, Mpanjaka Madagascar. In the newly integrated territories, the king quickly sought to consolidate his rule by exporting the Merina system of administration to the region. Now, remember that in previous eras of Merina history, there had existed two dominant classes of nobility, the Andreana, or royal relatives, and the Hofa nobility, or commoners who happened to occupy positions of power within local demes. Well, with the rapid conquest of vast swaths of new territory, Radama began to encounter a few problems. One of these problems was a lack of Andreana to govern these new lands. The way that Imerina had always governed its conquered territories was through the imposition of the Menekelje, or landholding system, to the conquered area. The local inhabitants would then be made to retcon their local history, declaring that the newly imposed Andreana family was, in fact, the Topantanje, or the original owner of the right to the land. The problem, though, is that Radama was starting to run out of viable relatives. As a result, the concept of Andreana began to take on a new meeting in Radama's Madagascar. Rather than a strictly hereditary class of royal-descended nobility, the concept of Andreana began to generalize into a more generic form of lordship. In order to have enough men to govern his territories, Radama invented new genealogies that promoted many Hofa lords to Andreana status and sent them to govern new Menekelje in their conquered lands. To add insult to injury, in the lands seized from Sakalava kingdoms, the newly appointed Andreana governors were given a unique title. They were Marosaranya, or the Lords of the Ports, a title which had traditionally been held by the Sakalava royal family. To their subjects, these landowners were the new Marosaranya, the new Lords of Western Madagascar. Alongside new governors, newly conquered territories were soon populated by Merina settlers, known as Vuanju, or Peanuts. The Andreana governor would then order the construction of a personal rofa in the territory to act as an administrative base of operations, from which taxes, military drafts, and labor convoys could be drawn, solidifying the annexation of the region into Imerina. But while expansion and warfare occupied much of Radama's attention throughout the 1820s, he was certainly not neglectful to other elements of his reign. Namely, Radama sought to radically transform the system of youth education within Imerina. Like most parts of the world, Imerina prior to Radama's reign did not have a formalized school system. Rather, most children would simply learn life skills from their families, while those who intended to work in more niche professions often learned a trade in the form of an apprenticeship. Among the richest of the rich, Sometimes they could hire private tutors to educate children in philosophy, literacy in Arabic abjad, and, of course, in the strategy game Fanruna. Radama, however, believed that this system was inefficient in the dissemination of knowledge. Instead, he sought to establish a formalized system of schooling in Madagascar, with this system being irrevocably based in British models. In 1820, Radama signed a new and edited version of his original treaty with the British 
one of the edits in the 1820 Treaty of Friendship, increased the number of youths who were sent to study abroad. 200 Malagasy youths were exported to study in Mauritius and Britain. Those sent to Mauritius would learn about the agricultural techniques and management of enslaved labor employed by British planters. Meanwhile, those sent to Britain observed how the British crafted many of the popular items desired by Malagasy buyers, including jewelry, rum, and most crucially, firearms and gunpowder. While a select few of the children of the elite Andriana were traveling abroad to receive education, many more received education within Madagascar. In the 1820s, British missionaries began pouring into Imerina at unprecedented numbers, all at Radama's invitation. Remember that Toamasina, in addition to being a prominent port, also had been home to one of Madagascar's largest missionary communities. Upon hearing that Toamasina had been captured by the pagan Merina, the missionaries were terrified about the reprisal that would surely await them. While Imerina had never committed violence against missionaries, the previous king, Andrinampoini Merina, had always possessed a reputation, fair or otherwise, for being hostile towards Christianity. Throughout his rule, foreign missionaries had been confined alongside foreign merchants in the town of Ambatomanga, in a sort of mercantile containment district. Not only that, but the missionaries had been loyal allies of Jean René, so surely Jean René's enemies would punish them for this alignment. But the feared violent reprisal never came. It turned out that Radama, far from being hostile towards the missionaries, had long desired for them to come to his own country. He had seen the effect that the establishment of missionary schools had had in Toamasina, namely the spread of literacy, and wanted to do the same thing in Imerina. Now, I want to highlight this again. It's a common myth that Africa was an illiterate continent before the colonial period. Imerina itself is one of the many, many counterexamples of this stereotype. Radama himself, remember, was a literate man, often writing in Surabe, or a form of Arabic abjad tweaked to fit the unique requirements of the Malgasi languages. On the other hand, it's worth noting that while literacy existed in Imerina, it was quite rare. While a few parts of Madagascar, namely along the southern tip, had higher rates of literacy in Surabe, the script was typically only learned by members of the royal family and official court diviners. Radama, on the other hand, wanted to create a larger, more general administrative class of literate Malgasi. So he hatched a plan. He requested that the missionaries move from Toamasina into Imerina, transliterate the Malgasi language into the Latin alphabet, and teach the Latin alphabet to their Malgasi students. Beyond his desire to spread literacy among the elite classes, there are some rumors that Radama's personal religious beliefs also played a role in his encouragement of missionary activity. It's not too surprising that this is the case, because Radama himself was noticeably, and possibly intentionally vague in his own religious views. Radama's vagueness can make it sometimes difficult to parse which principles the man truly held in his heart, which, combined with his friendliness towards missionaries, led many to speculate that he harbored sympathies for the Christian religion. On the one hand, numerous recorded interviews between Radama and various Christian missionaries share a similar tone. When speaking with missionaries, the king often alluded to the idea that he held unabashed personal Christian sympathies. He made statements questioning the power of the sacred idols of the nation, the Sampie, and even reputedly claimed to doubt the existence of Hasina entirely. However, Radama's interactions with fellow Merina took an entirely different tone. While on campaign in the military, Radama actively facilitated religious ceremonies involving Oje, 
or protective elements that could store and transfer Hasina between holders. The king himself apparently had a large collection of numerous amulets, including one which he permanently kept in his home and one which he permanently kept on his person. In fact, after conquering a region, Radama usually went out of his way to venerate local Saint-Pierre as a way to integrate them into the Merina religious system, just as previous Merina kings had done. And in his speeches, he frequently referred to the power of Hasina. There's a few schools of thought which try to explain Radama's contradictory religious actions. The first two are quite straightforward. Radama truly believed in one religious system and was just cynically pretending to believe the other. Radama was a Christian in his heart, and he was telling the truth when he spoke to the missionaries, but was forced to continue adhering to Medinev religious rituals and Sampia veneration to maintain political power. Or perhaps he was being honest when engaging in Sampia veneration, but telling the missionaries exactly what they wanted to hear so they would keep coming into Imerina. The most interesting theory, though, and the one that I personally believe holds the most water, is that Radama wasn't necessarily lying in either case. Rather, the supposed incongruity between his beliefs was simply a misunderstanding of conflicts between Radama and specific Sampie guardians, coupled with a few mistranslations, which combined to give European historians a wrong impression. Throughout the early 1820s, Radama engaged in frequent feuding with the guardians of many Sampie, including the most historically revered object, Kelly Malasa. The roots of his conflict with Kelly Malasa's guardians were multifaceted. On the one hand, the rapid conquest by Radama had resulted in numerous new Sampie from all over the newly conquered territories being integrated into the Merina system of veneration. The integration of new Sampie divided the volume of resources which Radama could dedicate to any given group of guardians. Additionally, Radama had increasingly focused his veneration away from Kelly Malasa in favor of another important Sampie, Manjakatsiroa. Manjakatsiroa was not new as it had been one of the original Saint-Pierre officially elevated by André and Jacques back in the 17th century. But under André Lampoigny Merina, and continuing under Radama, this Saint-Pierre took an increasingly key role in Merina religion at the expense of other Saint-Pierre, especially Kelly Malasa. Finally, Kelly Malasa's guardians had become upset with the behavior of some of the Christian missionaries Radama invited. At many missionary schools, the local missionaries and their students enjoyed grilling and consuming pork. While consuming pork was not generally taboo in Merina society, consuming pork while within the nearby presence of Kelly Malasa was seen as highly taboo and offensive. So, Kelly Malasa's guardians frequently lobbied the king to give them more financial support and to keep the Christian missionaries away from Kelly Malasa's temple. One recorded interaction between Radama and the Kelly Malasa guardian is one of the primary pieces of evidence most commonly cited in support of Radama being opposed to the worship of Saint-Pierre. When the guardian complained that Kelly Malasa could smell the pork coming from the missionary school kitchen, Radama lashed out. If a god smells it, is that god male or female? There is no god here but me. I am god. Radama then threatened the guardian that if he continued to complain or ever shared publicly the problems facing the Saint-Pierre, then the guardian would be found guilty of treason and executed. Now, at first glance, this statement does admittedly look like Radama is denying the supernatural power of the Saint-Pierre. The statement, there is no god here but me, is hard to ignore. However, it's important to remember the context of Merina religious history. Multiple times in the past, the Impanjake Merina had demoted Saint-Pierre. 
Andrea Massina Falona even persecuted all of the followers of one Sampier and threw it into the bottom of a lake in an effort to destroy it. The crucial point here is that while Sampier were venerated in Merina society, their worship could be endorsed or ended by the king at any time that he felt fit. Rather, I think it makes more sense to interpret this statement as Rama saying that he, and not the object Kelly Malasa, is the ultimate source of Hasina for the people. If anything, Rama's statement that he is God sounds like something that no Christian man or anyone with Christian sympathies would ever proudly proclaim because it is so straightforwardly opposed to Christian theology. Additionally, it's worth noting that Radama continued venerating other Sampie long after this incident occurred. Regardless of Radama's personal religious affinities, though, missionaries continued to pour into Madagascar in record numbers, setting up new schools and institutions. In addition to attracting missionaries, Radama also sought to attract another demographic from abroad skilled craftsmen. One craftsman would make a particular impact on Malgasi architectural history, a man named Louis Gros. Despite being one of the most important influences on Malgasi architecture, and arguably one of the most influential architects of his era more generally, surprisingly little is known about the man Louis Gros. After searching through French and British national archives and newspapers, I couldn't find any confident references to when or where he was born. In fact, the only real thing I can say for certain about Gros is that he was of some degree of French descent and that he is often referred to as a Creole. And while Creole means different things in the context of other parts of the world, in the context of the Francophone Indian Ocean culture, this most likely means that he was of a mixed-race background. But that's honestly not something we can be certain of one way or the other. He is often speculated to have been born either on the French colony of Réunion, but could have also been from Mauritius. While little is known about Gros' background, it is often noted that he was a carpenter while living on his original island home before immigrating to Madagascar. While in Madagascar, Gros began to work as a contractor and architect, putting together a strong resume as a builder of luxurious homes on Madagascar's eastern coast building luxurious homes for Toamasina's Creole and missionary populations. As missionaries began moving away from Toamasina and into the Merina Kingdom, Louis Gros moved with them, and soon caught the eye of the Impanjaka Madagascara himself. Rilama had started to believe that the current housing in the Rofa Vantanarifu no longer suited his needs. After all, the house of the king, Pesacana, had been constructed way back when Imerina was still a small regional power, governing over a few hills. If he was going to depict himself as the king of a modern, emerging power in Madagascar, the simple one-room home, albeit with a very large room, simply wouldn't suffice any longer. The final straw allegedly came in 1819, when Radama saw a sketch of the governor's mansion in Mauritius, and decided that it was entirely unjustifiable that a mere foreign governor had a home grander than the king of Madagascar. In an effort to replicate the architectural styles of the Mascarines, Rodama contacted Louis Gros and hired him to begin construction on a new and improved palace. The creation of Rodama's palace would be a long and drawn-out process. Gros already had a difficult task in terms of design demands. The design which he made was going to have to be both a personal home as well as a civic building. It needed to incorporate enough foreign elements to look exotic to Merina visitors, but incorporate enough local elements to be familiar and comfortable as a living place for Radama. Not only that, but Grohl also had to consider the ever-shifting desires of his eccentric and ambitious client, who frequently changed his minds on what he wanted and impulsively demanded new features and additions at the drop of a hat. What at first Radama had envisioned as a red, two-story cubic home with wooden shingles and a single-storied open-air porch was continually readapted. 
Not long after the completion of the original cubic design, Radama saw a home with a two-storied front porch, and decided that he wanted that renovation added to his new home. Then Radama decided he wanted to get rid of that two-story front porch, and replace it instead with a full two-story wraparound veranda that enclosed the entire home. Oh, and also add some exterior ornamentation. While the design was more than a little tricky, the home was ultimately completed by the end of 1824. By the end of this architectural journey, the new Merina Palace stood tall and proud in the roof of Antanarifu. At completion, the home possessed two full stories, as well as a third, smaller story in the roof, in addition to a two-level open-air veranda enclosing the first two floors. The roof was a gabled shape built with wooden shingles, imitating the Creole architecture of the eastern coast, but also possessed two distinct protrusions on either end of the roof, imitating the house horns present on traditional Merina buildings like the Besacana. Meanwhile, the interior of the gabled roof was decorated with silver acquired by melting down old Spanish coins. Silver bells also hung from the rails of the veranda, causing the exterior of the home to shimmer in the sunlight. Deriving from this distinctive look, the new building was given the name Tranufula, or House of Silver. On the interior, each floor was divided into two smaller rooms on the ends, and one large central room with a central pillar, or andre, protruding in the middle. Wallpaper mimicking popular French designs of the period was interrupted by a large mural of Radama leading his soldiers into battle, as well as portraits of Radama himself, and a retrospective portrait of his father. After all this work, the building satisfied Radama's hopes, and it's no wonder. Louis Gros did the impossible, and managed to achieve the perfect blend of exotic and familiar. Gros continued working on the Rofa for several more years, eventually adding a two-story stone mansion for Radama Sakalava's wife, and one day, Radama's personal tomb as well. In the meantime, Radama preserved his old home of Besacana, and converted it into a missionary school for his own children to attend. Given how things have gone so far, the future for Imerina, or sorry, the Kingdom of Madagascar, looks bright. Radama is close to achieving his goal of uniting the island under his rule, Relations with the British seem great, the Rofa Fantana Rifu is the most impressive it's ever been, and literacy is spreading throughout Madagascar faster than ever before. Surely, Imerina is on the early stages of a new golden age, right? Well, maybe, but if a golden age is on the horizon, the road to reach it will be anything but smooth. It turns out that those concessions Rilama made to the British, the abolition of the slave trade and the opening of free trade with Britain, had far greater consequences to the Merina economy than the king possibly could have predicted. Join us in our next episode, when Radama will level a new set of policies, seeking to transform Merina into the first industrial power in African history. Thank you for listening to the History of Africa podcast. If you like our show, then we would greatly appreciate it if you could help support the show and our project of freely available online history education. You can do this by supporting us at patreon.com slash historyofafrica, providing us a rating or review on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or iTunes, or by sharing the podcast with anyone who you think might enjoy learning about African history. This episode is brought to you by our supporters on Patreon, including Naomi Kanakia, Ayofagba Mie, Morgan Blackmore, Dimitri, Emmanuel Zaudi, Alexander Travis, B.B. Milliam, Conrad Schwenke, Travis Bell, Johnny Knowles, Godfrey Sevalabie, Evan Edwards, Pascal Nwokocha, Joe Maxwell, Nkechi Nwabodike, Sheunoronti Mine, Kwachua Manqua, Douglas Harder, Craig Bolton, Samuel Badu, Hassan Firgiani, Niti, Kitty, and Tariq Beetleman, among others. Thank you all for supporting the show. It really, really, really means a lot.